And what we're talking about is, do I look for another? Do I look for another? So Matthew's Gospel, the way it opens up, is it opens up setting the scene, giving us the genealogy of Jesus, giving us some background. It gives us this picture of these wise men that turn one and two, sets the scene. Number three continues to set the scene, as in the introduction of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist appears, and it says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Yeah, I know, I love that verse too. Make his path straight. Now, John wore garments of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. And so he goes about preaching, and there comes this moment. And then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Yeah, it is, Baba. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming on the, um, to rest on him. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4 moves on to the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is tempted. This is like the finishing of the preparation and those final stages. And then in chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have like the best sermon ever. Um, Jesus just like smashes the ball out of the park with point after point, bar after bar. His flow is insane. It's incredible. It's powerful. It's moving. And at the end of chapter 7, yeah, the end of chapter 7, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So Jesus is set apart from the scribes. After just dropping the greatest sermon ever, is it because of his lyrical G? No. Is it because of his ability? No. Because the scribes actually were really well clued up on the Old Testament scriptures as well. So that wouldn't have been necessarily the ultimate exclusivity and the impressiveness. But what they said was that it was his authority that stood out above everything else. And so then what we have in the following chapters, which is 8. So from chapter 8, 9 and 10, what we see is Jesus kind of, and the writer displaying what this authority was that made him different from the scribes. So literally in chapter 8 we and 9 and 10, we see a leper cleansed, still it bang, a Roman centurion healed. Um, he talks about authority. Um, he even goes as far as to say, Jesus, you don't need to waste your time coming to me. I understand you're a man of authority. I'm a man of authority. I say to a guy, go, go. He goes, I say, come. He comes, I say, do this. And he does it. And it happens. Just say the word and it's done. And Jesus is like, wow, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. And so there's this miracle happens, which is outside of their tribe. So a Roman centurion is healed. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Uh, many then are brought to him. Demons are cast out. He healed all who were sick that were there. He tells a storm to jam its hype, and it calms down. Uh, Jesus heals two men with demons. He heals a paralytic. Jesus calls Matthew. I've put that in there with the miracles just because uh, Matthew's a tax collector, a colluder. With the, he, he's colluding with the enemy. Um, he's working with the Romans to get himself money. He doesn't care about his own people and everything. And so for him to turn around, give away his money to right his wrongs and to follow Jesus is a pretty crazy sign of authority that someone who's that clued into the opposing system of those imposing slavery on the people in one type of sense, um, financially speaking, would then twist and turn the whole way around, repent and go in a different direction. That's huge. Um, And then after Matthew, we have a girl brought back from the dead. So we have a resurrection story. So this is is pretty huge stuff. Scribes don't do this kind of stuff. Um, Kind of sets them apart as unique. 
Um, a woman gets healed en route. Um, Jesus heals two blind men. Yep, two. Heals a man who's unable to speak. And then in chapter 10, um, just to prove this whole issue of authority, he then says to his disciples, hey guys, why don't you do this stuff? Um, get in twos, go out, hit the road, Jack, and um, this is how you're going to do it. And then he teaches them and prepares them to go out on road. So the man then go on road. And then in chapter 11, we hear about Jonah again. So chapter 11, verse 1. Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I find that fascinating, that we see John announcing Jesus, and one of the ways he announced him, and I didn't quite read it in that particular passage, but what's in there is this moment where John kind of sees Jesus, and like instead of being like, oh, okay, let me slowly introduce you guys, let me um, kind of, you know, do a bring in and an intro. He just goes like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I don't know why I kind of did like um, Obadiah from Iron Man. Tony Stark built this in a cave with a bunch of scraps. But for some reason, <laughs> Obadiah and John the Baptist sound the same. So if they're ever doing a film about him, they totally need to hire that guy. So he has this moment where he just gets overcome with this joy and this excitement that he just declares who Jesus is. Now, John, from the description I read, hadn't been living like the prosperity gospel. Like, he'd been wearing like these weird rags, dressing kind of funny, eating locusts and honey out in the wilderness. And people were traveling out to see him. And so he's not living like the high life. And in this passage, clearly he's in prison, so he's not living the high life there either. But something has fundamentally changed. And I think from this particular passage, we can all learn stuff about ourselves that prepares ourselves for the different seasons in life. Because there are these moments when you have this kind of relationship, this excitement with God, but there's this correct setting. So he's chosen to dress funky. And he's made the choice. He's died to self, but he's made the choice to do these things. And he's out in the wilderness. But while he's out in the wilderness, people are traveling to see him. It's pretty awesome when people are traveling to see you. So like, we've got guests here today. It's pretty awesome for me whenever I see someone new who comes. You're like, oh wow, there's someone new. This is, this is awesome. This feels cool. He's out in the wilderness and there are new people coming in their masses all the time. And no matter how much you're denying to self, it feels pretty amazing. And then he gets to the moment where he's going to fulfill his ultimate objective. So this dude's ultimate objective was literally to be in the wilderness and to prepare the way for Jesus. So Jesus is coming, and he jumps straight on it and goes, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the environment he's in is really quite conducive to that. And it's a great environment to be in. And we all have moments when the whole faith Jesus thing is easy. And so easy, we don't even mind in public going a bit nuts like that and just throwing it out there. But then what, what changes here? Is it because the environment around him and everyone else changes and he changes? No, because he, it says here, um, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he heard about the deeds. He heard about what was really happening. He sent word by his disciples, said to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? So he's heard the things I've listed and he's asking that question. And I thought, that doesn't, that's not one add one equals two. It doesn't make any sense for him to have heard the deeds and then ask the question, is he really the one? 
well, like, gee, like, what could he have done better than that list? I don't know what Jesus could have added to that list that would have made John think differently. And then it occurs to me that for John, it's not actually about what's happening in the world around him. It's about what's happening to him. So John's in prison. And John feels abandoned as an individual. It doesn't matter to him what is happening in the wider body of Christ. It doesn't matter what's happening to other people. What matters is what's happening to him. And he feels abandoned. And he feels alone. And he's in this prison. And sometimes, even if you're not in a physical prison, to add another dimension to it, there can be like an element of a spiritual prison, like a, a, a satanic side to it, a, a demonic side to it. And while he's in this prison, he goes from a place who is the one, the only one, who's saying this is the Christ. There's no one saying Jesus is the Christ at the beginning, just for the record. There's no one saying it. There's John saying it. No one else is making a public declaration. And so John is here. But one of the things I really love about John's character is in this moment, under all this pressure and all this in a turmoil that's running through his emotions, he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So the question is plural. So John's doubt while he's in prison and while he's going through this really tough time, his overriding feeling isn't even about himself in prison. Even though the attack on him mentally, spiritually is that direction and that way inclined, his heart is naturally... Oh, dang, have I turned masses of people to follow after a false messiah? Do we look for another? Am I going to have to tell my disciples to spread the word that you're not the guy? Do we look for another? What I love about Jesus is when Peter and Jesus had this moment where Jesus told Peter what he was going to do. Peter said, no way, uh-uh, not happening. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because what Peter was doing was he was positioning himself against God's will for what Jesus would do and the salvation of all mankind throughout history and into the future and throughout all space and time. That's a pretty big deal. Peter's trying to get in the way of that. John's gone to Jesus very differently. He's asking the question. And Jesus is seeing the vulnerability of John. He's seeing the situation of John. And what does he do? He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. And he says, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is like filled with love towards John at this moment. And the fact he says to them, go tell John what you hear and see. So he's not just go back to John and say, yeah, Jesus says he's totally the guy. Oh, that sells it. No, he says, tell him what you hear. Tell him what you see. So these disciples of John spend time around Jesus as he's gone out, as his disciples have gone out and started to do these amazing things not in their own strength, but in God's strength. And so when they would have come to John, they wouldn't have said, John, Jesus says this. John would have experienced and heard the very same thing that people said after hearing Jesus speak. 
wow, this is a guy of authority. Wow, this is the guy. Because they'd have gone, they'd have gone, John, John, he said this, but you should have seen it. I saw this guy. I've seen him on the ends on the block for time. I've seen he couldn't walk. I've seen this guy couldn't see. I've seen this guy couldn't hear. Oh, man. And there were people who were emotionally tormented. And they got set free. They got released. There were people who were so poor and they received this good news. And you should have seen their faces. You should have seen the crowd. You should have seen how the people were. And what difference does it make for John? Well, John can hold his head high as it drops and rolls. Because John is going to get beheaded. And he's going to get killed. But for John, his, his fundamental question is about who Jesus is. And he can now die well. I remember hearing... A friend of mine, a pastor, he said this to me. He said, being a pastor, the main job is helping people to die well. It's helping people to die well. Because if, if you think about it, the one thing that every single human being is definitely guaranteed to do is, is, is die. We're all, I hate to break it. If some of you came here this morning and didn't know that, uh, I hate to rock your world. Everyone dies. <laughs> you know, it is Game of Thrones. Everyone dies. <laughs> No one, doesn't matter how much you love that person, that series will not end with people alive. Um, yeah, everyone I love is dead. Everyone. Oh, God, everyone. And every time I tell myself, I'm never going to watch anymore, and then I'll watch another one die, and I'll be angry for another two weeks. But that's life, and that's Game of Thrones, and that's real life. Because we look at this story, John the Baptist, Jesus goes on to say he's the greatest among men. But he's great. He says, but even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. He throws out these bombs. Now, after this, the people start to ask questions about John. So they've heard what Jesus said to his disciples. And then the people that are there start to ask these different pressing questions. So Jesus starts engaging on different levels. But I want to skip to the last thing that he says within the context of the chapter. Because he says, because it says in verse 25 of chapter 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed it to them, to little children. Revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if you think John's disciples may have been around for the whole of this discourse about who John is, and Jesus goes into who John is, and then he goes on to some really quite heavy judgmental stuff and then he brings it right round to the end and if you can imagine if they went back to John told him what they heard like he said to them tell him what you hear and tell him what you see they'd have gone back and they'd have been like oh you should have heard it John you should have heard it he stood and he said to the people if ever there was one who was the Messiah he said these words come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Imagine being in prison knowing your death is coming, spiritually feeling tormented to the point where you've gone from, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to are you the one or do we look for another? And you hear the words, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. And John would have heard those words and would have given rest to his soul as he would have been beheaded, trusting in this Jesus. Now, the beheading for John isn't that big a deal. It's a pretty big deal. It's his head. (laughs) But it's not that big of a deal because it's not out of the blue for him. He knows he's the final prophet because all the prophets ever did was to point to Jesus. And he is the final one. He's the final prophet. And he knows what happens to any true prophet. They get killed. But his torment in the prison is, wait a second, the good prophets got killed. And some of the bad ones, God put his judgment on and killed them. Am I suffering justly for being a true prophet? Or am I being killed because I've opposed God and pointed everyone to a false messiah? Because there have been tons of false messiahs. That's his dilemma. And in this moment, in this moment, as Jesus drops this bomb, as Jesus does what he does, there can be no doubt. None of the false messiahs did any of this stuff. No one had ever done any of this stuff. And now his own disciples have seen it and they relay it to him. But he knows that he can have rest as he turns and he puts his trust again firmly in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But of course, we're talking about thousands of years ago. And that has nothing to do with any of us. Because none of us have ever had issues where we've heard about what God is doing in so many people's lives around us and felt abandoned and like we were forgotten. We've never felt like that. And some of us have never felt like packing it in. And so many of us had never got to the point where we've questioned the validity of the gospel and who Jesus is. And even though we could tell stories of all the people we know around us and all the different things. I don't even have to go outside my family. I can tell the story of my granddad with um, shrapnel from a shell that hit him in the heart in the Second World War. Cried out to God for healing and my granddad lived. I could tell you of my dad. I remember his tumor on his hand. I remember praying for it and it was eight. And the next day when he woke up, the tumor was gone. It was lumped like that. Just gone the next day. I could tell you my own story. My parents that couldn't have children had uh, three full-term miscarriages and doctors said they'd never have kids. And a church around the corner from here prayed and prophesied, said, God's going to give you a son. And my dad didn't believe it. And here I am. They were losing me the same way. The church prayed. God heard their prayer. And I'm here. I could tell you my own story. of I could tell you so many screw-ups that I've done. I could tell you so many times when I've been fervent for God and I've been declaring, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. I could tell you the other times when I'm cowering in my bedroom going, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm not even talking about Christianity. I'm talking life. I cannot do this anymore. What could I possibly have to bring to the table? I have nothing left. And I'm not talking about nothing left as in like, as a pastor, I mean as a human being. I don't know why I want to wake up tomorrow morning. And yet I wake up the next morning. Not because of any other reason, but because he sustains me. Because every time I come to the end of myself, I have a moment like John where I ask the bigger question. Jesus, is this legit? Is this legit? Do I look for another? Jesus had 70 disciples leave him in one day. 70. Over 70. And then he turned to the 12 and said, are you guys going too? And Peter said, you hold the words of truth and life. Sadly, there's nowhere else to go, Jesus. 
you are truth and you are life. And you are the one where our souls find rest. Today, what I believe God wants to say to us is he sees you and he sees me and he sees every individual here. Some of us are in prisons that we've done to ourselves. Some of us are in prisons that have happened to us that we had no say in, but it holds us so tightly. And for others of us, it's that we've done things to other people that still, though we did it to them, holds us captive and we think we can never step outside of that. There's all different shapes and sizes to the prisons that we fit in. They don't have to be a Roman one and they don't, but they, they fit into the same category of the, the spiritual torment that John goes through in this moment that causes us to question the very thing that can give us rest. And today what I want to call us to is a place of repentance. I'm not talking about listing your sins. I'm talking about turning around from the position of doubting the only thing that will give you rest and will give you peace and will sustain you in ways that nothing else can. I'm going to pray for us today and then I'm going to kind of um, wrap things up. But while I pray and we just take a moment to chill down a bit, um, if Leke could do that last song again, Lex, uh, break every chain just um, quietly in a minute when I finish praying, just so we have our own moment, just to chill, because John was in a place of solitude. He probably didn't have background music, but, you know, I'm willing to make that sacrifice <laughs> and do that. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you that you see each individual person here. I thank you that though you speak to us today as a collective, you speak into the depths of mystery on an individual level that every single one of us has, knows, and experiences. We may not be in that place today. We may be in the place of declaring, of living that vibrant life. If we're not living that vibrant life, then I would suggest even if we're unaware today, we are living in a prison because when we're out of the prison, spiritually speaking, we, are, we know and we are aware of the goodness of God and we are declaring it openly every day within our lives. Maybe not as blatantly as John, but it, it's, it's screaming out because it can't be contained. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you meet with us? Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you breathe new life into us? Would you set us free from the things that have been done to us? Would you set us free from the things we've done to others? And would you set us free from the illusion of a prison that holds us shut. But we say the words today that you spoke that would have been repeated by John's disciples to him. And we come to you because we have labored and we are heavy laden. And we know that you are the one who will give us rest. Father, this morning we take upon the yoke of Jesus and we want to learn from him because he is gentle. He is lowly in heart and has our best interest like no one else does. May we find rest in him this week for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.